Welcome, everyone, to the 18th episode of POV Crypto. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? It's a party here in the SF studio. I got my homie Julian here in the house. Julian, introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name is Julian Martinez. I've been in the crypto space for about two years. Over the last year, I've been um, writing a lot of stuff that I find interesting and publishing on Medium to help uh, solidify those ideas for myself and hopefully teach people a thing or two as well. Julian, I can definitely empathize with the whole Medium route. It really helps. It really helped me learn about how to both communicate with the crypto audience at large and also really allowed me to refine my ideas because it really gives uh, gives you good feedback. Uh, people people can read your articles and directly respond to you. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that medium. Both of you guys actually got on This Week in Ethereum in the past like month or so. Julian had an article about learning Solidity and uh, David had a pretty interesting article about Maker. Both made, uh, m- both made it to the big times. So Julian, tell us uh, what you do for a job. So I'm a staff writer for Quantstat, which does a lot of things related to uh, security on smart contract protocols. Very cool. How long have you been working in for them? For a little over a year now. I think the, I think that beats me and Christian. You, uh, you've you been working in the space officially longer than us. To jump into some of the topics, I think we have an interesting show for y'all. One of the reasons we started doing this show, again, is to kind of bridge the gap between what's happening on the Ethereum side of things and what's happening on the Bitcoin side of things and really have an educated conversation about it. And Julian actually has a very interesting history of and path to get to where he is right now, which is somewhere in the middle, which most people don't kind of have that perspective. Julian, do you kind of want to talk about how you went from being really hardcore on the Ethereum side to kind of thinking that you understand why Bitcoin's a thing? Yeah, that's actually a pretty cool story, I think. Uh, so yeah, I started Ethereum in my previous job. I had some co-workers that taught me about Ethereum. Didn't really understand it too much at the time, but definitely got really excited got um, all into it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about proof of stake and what that was going to look like. And when I was exploring the ideas behind proof of stake, I thought it was extremely important to learn more about proof of work. So I dived uh, further, further down that rabbit hole. And uh, that actually gave me tons of respect for proof of work and what Bitcoin was doing. And then uh, another turning point for me was... Um, at some point, I forgot exactly what I was like challenging Francis Pouliot, Pouliot, yeah. Pouliot on uh, Twitter about, and he totally destroyed me on Twitter about uh, central points of failure in Ethereum having to do with Infura. So that dove me down another rabbit hole having to do with Ethereum nodes and stuff. And yeah, it definitely gave me a lot more respect for Bitcoin. Definitely. Where now I'm, I'm really into both, I would say. Do you have a, a preference for either one, or would you say you, you split yourself down the middle? I respect, I'll split myself down the middle. So Bitcoin, I think they're, they're really shooting for the use case of sound money, and they're completely focused on that, and I respect that. And also Ethereum, they're really experimental, and I am interested in the different use cases that will emerge from this platform. However, I have to acknowledge that at this point, there's a lot of experimental things. I, I'm extremely optimistic about Ethereum. But I do want to acknowledge that there's still a lot of things to be figured out. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair explanation of the differences between between the two platforms. What about, um, so Ethereum can't really exist without projects uh, on Ethereum having success. Are there any projects that really capture your attention? Well, just like you, I'm really paying attention to MakerDAO a lot. 
Actually, recently, not too long ago on Twitter, when you posted about different applications that are locking up a lot of Ethereum, like Augur and MakerDAO, that actually caught my attention a lot. So I do, I'm, I'm curious of how those different uh, applications develop in the future. David, actually, uh, Julie and I, the other day, were talking about how you kind of were one of the first people yeah. talking about Ether lockup as a metric. So we're going to shout out to you, man. You definitely started the conversation there. Strong signal. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm working on a uh, an article about that, but it's definitely a little bit more ambitious of an article. So stay tuned for that. David, I would like to hear how you kind of came up with that idea anyways of just evaluating Maker and other uh, tokens on Ethereum based on how much Ether they locked up in their contract. Yeah, uh, I think it would actually start with the uh, the basic attention token and our mutual critique of it. The idea that um, Brendan Eich went to the Bitcoin world and said, hey, like donate some Bitcoin so I can start this project. And then he never got any Bitcoin. Uh, and so therefore he went and created his own token called the basic attention token. Uh, and that is just this internal currency for this digital advertising um, ecosystem didn't really sit well with me since you can't I don't and then I think this has uh, a lot to do with the velocity of money and this is kind of where I, I kind of grew my skills in uh, working for New Alchemy on the research team there and and designing token economics I realized that you know this velocity problem the answer to it is staking and so as you have this token that is moving around this ecosystem and other other tokens also work like this, like with the Gollum token, basic attention token, any token that represents just uh, a payment token, the, the velocity, the, the transactions of these tokens are such a high, high uh, count that the token always immediately ends up back on the secondary markets. And if all the tokens end up on the secondary markets, then your token has no value. Um, and so no one is incentivized to hold BAT, no one is incentivized to hold Gollum, and so the tokens end up on the secondary markets. Uh, and so this, the while designing uh, token e economics for the clients at, at my previous job, we all realized that we all needed to find a ways to stake tokens and get, get them off of the secondary market. Um, but it was basically all artificial staking mechanisms. And you can see this with other kind of scam projects like Navcoin, where like the once you stake your tokens in the Nav wallet, like you get payments of additional tokens, but it doesn't actually provide any value. Uh, and so I realized that all of the tokens that have value must uh, stake, to uh, stake tokens and then allow you to receive what people consider to be commodity money. Uh, and so these are tokens like uh, REP, the Augur's token, or OMG, the, the staking token for the Plasma uh, sidechain. And then they all pay you ETH uh, dividends, which will ultimately be a staking token in Ethereum proof of stake. So it's less about how much you can transact and much more about how much you can stake. And so that all of a sudden staking as a mechanism becomes really, really important for a measure of value. And so we can see the measure that you can you can measure some value of, of you can measure the value of, pro, of projects as a function of how much ether they have locked up inside them and so we can see that like MakerDAO has a ton of ether locked up inside of it and it's token number 20 and uh, Augur has a, a decent amount of ether locked up inside it and it's token 40 and I think we'll be able to see that as time goes on good projects will have more ether locked up inside of them yeah and I think also too you you pointed out to me uh you point out to me not too long ago that it wasn't just the staking, but it does have to have like a, a use case behind it where the staking enables something that was impossible without it. Am I correct in that summary? 
Yeah, right. You can't just stake for no reason. Like it has to, it has to do something. Uh, and so, like um, with Augur, your your stake is something that provides data to the Augur prediction market. Uh, and so, without people staking, then you you it's about having skin in the game. And so, you have to stake some value in order for the Augur prediction market to come to be able to work. If you don't, if you have nothing to lose, then you have no reason to accurately stake. Yeah, I remember like about a year ago, there was lots of conversations about different projects like staking and a lot of pressure for these uh, different projects to stake. But it just seemed like only motivated in order to pump the token, which I thought, you know, didn't make sense to me and seemed a little scammy. The use cases that do thrive, not only stake, but have a purpose behind the stake, like, like what you're saying. What I find is pretty interesting is kind of the emergence of things that are really, really strong themes in the Bitcoin space, which is that spending is not necessarily how your token accrues value. It's about holding that and a reason to hold. And for Bitcoin, the reason to hold is the scarcity um, and exiting the financial system and saving that money. But also this idea of skin in the game and don't trust people that do not have skin in the game. And the most important thing is to have skin in the game and be playing rather than just watching on the outside. I feel like it's pretty interesting to see some of the better things in Ethereum start to converge with a lot of the strongly held beliefs in Bitcoin. You know, again, this is this is why you're starting to see the 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 quality emerge and, and the scams kind of, you know, fold. Yeah, and and to add on to that, we can definitely see the value of staking even in Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin, you don't stake your tokens, but it's kind of, uh, that's what a proxy of hodling is. And so the whole idea behind scarcity is that you buy the tokens off the secondary market and you keep them in your in your wallet and for for as a as a hedge against you know the world falling apart. And that's kind of like staking. It's it's permanently pulling tokens off of the secondary market as you watch value accrue to your uh, wallet. Uh, it's different with Bitcoin because the number of Bitcoins you have always stays the same, but it's, it's grows, it tends to grow in appreciation of the dollar. And so we see these mechanisms that tend to incentivize the reduction of the supply on the secondary market really being the, things, the thing that drives the market cap um, uh, of these tokens. And so you, we can see the the incentive to unstake your token is always going to be the price you can get on the secondary market. Uh, and so as we see the Bitcoin price dropping, we'll, we'll see an, uh, an incentive to buy uh, more Bitcoin and then have that have those tokens on the secondary markets dry up. And then the price tends to appreciate as a bull market comes. And then some like crazy new valuation of Bitcoin happens. And then all of a sudden the incentive to un unstake your Bitcoin from your from your hodled Bitcoin and then sell it uh, increases. And so there's this constant st uh, tug of war between the price of the token on the secondary market and the incentive to to stake it in your wallet or literally stake it if we're talking about Ethereum. So I don't I don't want to get too far off of the agenda here. I know that we wanted to talk about some stuff that's happening in Maker. I know that recently they just got added to Coinbase as well as Golem and some other pretty dubious tokens. So would love to get, get your guys' reaction on Maker and Dai getting added to Coinbase and then some of these other things and maybe even a general assessment of your opinion on Coinbase in general. Julian, want to take this one? So actually, uh, to go off on Maker, I was actually a little surprised that they put Maker and the DAI on Coinbase just because I thought, you know, they had their own stable coin 
And the one thing that made uh, the DAI and Maker very different than the stablecoin provided by Coinbase is that the DAI is uncensorable. And that what many people don't really know about, there's tons of different stablecoins on the market. But the difference between those stable coins and the DAI is that the that those other stable coins they have these little backdoors programmed into smart contracts to blacklist certain addresses. So that's why I was just I was a little surprised that they added it to Coinbase. Yeah, I, I was a little surprised at first. Uh, I'm I'm really happy they did it actually, be, uh, because having a DAI passage uh, from Ethereum to real world fiat is really really important. Uh, so people who make a living inside of Ethereum, uh, earning their uh, their income in DAI, need at some point to to get actual dollars so they can pay their taxes or their you know their bills. Uh, so that's really really nice. That's awesome for the MakerDAO uh, community to have that direct highway of value. Um, but you are totally right. It does it it does kind of compete with their stablecoin, but it also uh, attracts different customers. Uh, and so I think Dai is going to be the stablecoin for just the average person, uh, people who just interact and trade on Ethereum. And uh, U.S. dollar backed stablecoins are going to be much more for institutional investors um, and people who are a little bit uh, less innovative, kind of has a, have a bigger ship to steer and don't really want to risk uh, risk uh, having to, to store their assets in DAI. And so I think they're actually serving two different customers here. And they are the first uh, bridge of DAI to US dollar. And so they might be able to capitalize on that bridge. So they maybe they're making a, a long-term play to make sure that, uh, you know, if people want to get out their value that they earned inside of Ethereum that it's denominated in DAI, if they need to get that out so they can actually live their lives, they'll have to go through Coinbase and make a Coinbase account. And Coinbase will probably charge some fees for that. You brought up Golem as an example of a token that could never appreciate in value, but yet Coinbase did recently add it. Um, just want to kind of get your your opinion on, is Coinbase doing what's best for its investors? Is it adding quote unquote assets that are good investments or have any chance of gaining value? Well, it's not really up to Coinbase to uh, decide what people want, right? So they should just have the exchange and let people decide. Uh, I mean, the whole velocity idea is really just a theory. We don't actually know if that's true or not. I mean, that's it's included in my own investment thesis. Although if you include it in yours, you should do your own research. But I mean, it, it kind of remains to be seen. If Golem is really adopted as a platform. Uh, people do need to gain access to the Golem to token in order to uh, gain access to its services. And so maybe it's maybe Coinbase isn't selling it as an investment, but it really just is selling it as a utility token. Yeah, as far as uh, the value of these different tokens, I just kind of focus just on Bitcoin and Ethereum because my whole investment thesis is for even if you know the velocity theory of token value is true, and let's say Golem is just used a ton, has a ton of velocity, well, you'll still have to pay gas in order to use that token, and that would just accrue value to Ethereum. So my whole investment thesis is, you know, during this bear market, dollar cost, dollar cost average into Bitcoin and Ethereum. And everything else, well, if it succeeds, good, and it will continue to add value onto Ethereum. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, I don't want to, you know, get too much into uh, laying on Coinbase. You've always, David, I know, has always been a lot more open to Coinbase, whereas I've definitely been a lot more critical, as are most Bitcoiners. They're a necessary evil. Staying on Maker, I know David um, has been putting out some controversial works 
um, out there. And personally, I think that if it's not controversial, then you're not saying much. David, you want to kind of talk about some of the ruffled feathers that <laughs> have emerged in the maker community? Yeah. So I was talking with um, Ryan Adams on Twitter. Uh, and uh, we were, actually no, this was a call that we had. And he kind of talked about how stablecoins kind of represent a, a parasite on Ethereum uh, because Ethereum, Ether, is supposed to be the currency of Ethereum. And if we use uh, stablecoins to transact on Ethereum and then we're not using Ether, that's to Ether's detriment. Um, and so that's that's one thing when Ethereum is proof of work, but when it's proof of stake, the security of uh, Ethereum is going to be directly related to the price of ether, uh, and so if we use like uh, U.S. dollar-backed stablecoins, that's a bad thing because uh, we've neglected ether. Dai, on the other hand, uh, is basically a meta ether, uh, and so for every Dai right now, there's uh, for every one Dai, there's about two and a half dollars worth of ether locked up, uh, and so it's not true that Dai is a parasite on Ethereum. It's actually the opposite. Uh, because if you want to send one dollar and die, you need to have two and a half dollars of ether locked up in a CDP in order to to support that die. And so, expanding on this idea, uh, multi collateral die is coming uh, in Q1 of 2019, where I'll, where you'll be able to lock up other token types instead of just ether in order to get your die. So some of the tokens that have been discussed are. Um, DGD, the the, uh, the one token equals one gram of gold token. Uh, and so that's totally separate from Ether. So as cryptocurrencies has risen and fallen in this great bear mar- or bull, mar- bear, bull bear uh, market, uh, the, the value... <laughs> the, yeah, there, there you go. Uh, the value of the DGD token has remained around $40, which is the price of gold. And so we get to... We get to mint more dye uh, to expand the growth of dye uh, with with that. Um, so my article that that kind of yeah, like you said, ruffled some feathers in the maker DAO community was an article about how we shouldn't allow ether to drop below a one to one ratio for dye. Uh, and so for every single dye that's out there, there should at least be one dollar's worth of ether locked up in order to retain ether as the internal currency of Ethereum. Uh, and so I, I had some people agree with that idea. I had a lot more disagree. Uh, and it actually started off a great conversation in the MakerDAO chat. Uh, so if you want to, you can still go read it right now at MakerDAO.com and then sign up for Rocket Chat. Um, and then the the article I wrote kind of uh, caught on fire on Twitter a little bit, which is kind of cool. And, and Vitalik ended up commenting on uh, the MakerDAO subreddit about this subject. Uh, and so it, it sparked, a, sparked a nice little debate. Um, so for people who want to, to hear more about this debate, I'm going to be actually talking with somebody from the MakerDAO community team that directly disagrees with, with my article. And so we're going we're gonna to hash that out in a future episode of POV Crypto. So stay tuned for that one. I know that one thing that uh, Julian has done that we have not done is he has set up both a Bitcoin node and an Ethereum node. And again, one of the themes of this show is we want to bridge the gap between everyone's crypto bubble. We want to bring the truth. And uh, so we want to talk about some of the misconceptions that Bitcoiners have about setting up Ethereum nodes and how the Ethereum network works. And then on the flip side, talk about, um, you know, what are some of the misconceptions that people that are not fully in Bitcoin have about Bitcoin? In crypto, there's a lot to learn, right? And one of the things that I, uh, you know, is trying to figure out, there's a lot of white noise, trying to figure out like what is real and what's not. So in my journey, when I was uh, that led me to embracing Bitcoin a bit more, I just tried to understand those 
arguments a lot more. But uh, one of the arguments that turned out to be um, a misunderstanding on the point of the Bitcoin community's part was that the Ethereum nodes, in order to run an Ethereum node, it has to be uh, one terabyte in size, which is a huge misconception. And the reason it's not the, the Ethereum blockchain that is bloated, uh, it's the Ethereum state that's bloated. And the reason is, is because a state is managed different between Bitcoin and, and Ethereum. And in Bitcoin, it's called stateless, meaning that they don't have uh, everyone's account in storage. I believe it's in, in memory. So every node is just kind of keeping track of uh, who owns what uh, UTXO at any given moment. But for uh, Ethereum, they're saving in every single block, they have the entire history of what uh, Ethereum looked like at that specific block in time. For instance, if you have this uh, archival node, so what's bloated are the archival nodes. Um, and those you can like look at what Ethereum looked like at block number 1000. You can look uh, at what Ethereum looked like at block 1 million because all of that is stored on your laptop or most likely on your different storage device at that time. But if you want to run a fully verified node, you do not need to keep track of all that data. You just need to keep track of what state looked like in Ethereum in the last like 2000 blocks. And even that is a parameter that you can modify. So if you have a, a pruned node in Ethereum is a pruned uh, state. And that is, I believe it's around it's probably under 25 gigabytes right now for the entire history of the blockchain with a, a pruned state. Yeah, Julian, let me hop in there and just make sure I, I understood what you said. Uh, so Bitcoin has these UTXOs, which are unsent transaction outputs. And so that's just the ledger. It's just the, the pure ledger of Bitcoin and the nodes. Uh, every time a UTXO happens, uh, the, the nodes uh, log that and then the ledger is updated. With Ethereum, it, it operates differently, correct? And so uh, what you're saying is that there are two types of nodes, the archival nodes and the, uh, what are the other ones called? Prune state, but they mean different things in uh, the Bitcoin node and the Ethereum node. I think that's why there was a big misconception because I believe like a, a pruned Bitcoin node is after a certain amount of blocks. Mm. You just like throw those in blocks away with all those transactions in them. So you can't fully serve the nodes. I might be wrong about that. You're... Yeah. So in Bitcoin, there is no such thing as a pruned full node because the way that UTXOs are calculated is you calculate the history of the coin from the day it was minted. Right. So there's no there's no ledger that says this account has this much. This account has this much. Rather, it's saying, you know. After you add everything up, this is the this is the final balance on every account. Okay, whereas Ethereum has an account, it doesn't. So essentially, you know, with Bitcoin, um, there's never a final state. It's just uh, it's just valid transactions layered on top of each other, and you have to add them all up in order to get to the reality. Whereas Ethereum, there is a state. Whereas like you're saying, okay, these transactions happen. This is the state. And then that state can be updated over time. I'll definitely like look more into that in the future. But <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You're talking about how states work and um, why there's a misconception of how you can prune an Ethereum node. Yeah, so in Ethereum, you can have like a full leave where locally on your laptop, you download every single block 
And this is because state is uh, stored in storage. There's a whole, so you know how in each block in Bitcoin, there's like a Merkle tree of all the transactions. Well, on Ethereum, there's also a separate tree, a Patricia Merkle tree, which I think is just a variation of a Merkle tree where they store the entire state of Ethereum. And after a certain amount of blocks, you can actually just toss out that old history um, and still be a fully verified node and still also serve all the previous blocks throughout the Ethereum node's history to, to your peers, and they can fully uh, construct the blockchain uh, from their own nodes. Yeah, so, so what you're saying is that if, if Bitcoiners are used to this rule where they have to, you absolutely have to have all the data ever about Bitcoin, and if you don't, you're trusting somebody else. If you carry that sentiment over to Ethereum, you end up with, uh, you know, terabyte-sized uh, uh, node, but that, that terabyte-sized node is just not necessary for actually fully validating transactions on Ethereum. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, you can have a fully validated node where you don't trust anyone in the network and it's not one terabyte just because you delete old states. I guess like the in my mind, the if we were to make an equivalent and with an Ethereum node, with a Bitcoin node, it would be the same if, if in storage for uh, a Bitcoin node, you stored what everyone's balance was on each block in time in the history of every Bitcoin node. So I can just really easily pull up what everyone's balance looked like at uh, block 1000 and also the current block as well. Right, right, right. So like I haven't transacted in Bitcoin for like the last thousand blocks, but a, a, a like a node that would operate a Bitcoin node that operated like Ethereum would have data every single block about, hey, David's wallet hasn't transacted this block. It still has this amount. And then every single block that is more data for every single wallet, regardless of its uh, transaction. Is that is that what you said? Can you repeat that? <laughs> yeah, it, I, th I think we're on the same page. Essentially, yeah. they're different systems, okay? But I do have a question for you, Julian. And I know regardless of, you know, are pruned nodes the same as fully validated nodes or whatever, is Ethereum having issues? Like, if I wanted to start up a node now, would it be hard for me to find a peer to download the blockchain from? Do you know if that is reality? Because that is something that people in Bitcoin claim is, uh, is a big issue. I think uh, th this part, I understand a little. So the point with the whole, my points that I was bringing up just had to do with the storage. Uh, I have a pretty good and pretty fast laptop. And apparently like with Ethereum nodes, like the biggest issue was how f fast that you can write uh, data onto your computer. So it was about how fast, uh, I believe it was processing power or something like that. It was a different issue. I'm less uh, aware of those limitations. But I will say that I tried to download a Bitcoin node on my laptop and I didn't have enough storage space. <laughs> but you did have enough storage space for uh, a pruned Ethereum node? I did. Interesting. I did. I think, uh, I think Bitcoin's blockchain is, like two, is, oh, is coming close to 200 gigabytes right now for a full node. Uh, but it's almost 10 years old. Yes, yeah, that's, good, that's definitely, I'll definitely concede to that point. It is worth noting that uh, in Ethereum 2.0, they're going to start charging rent for having your data uh, on Ethereum. And so Ethereum should become a lot lighter as uh, I need to, to really dive into this before I can speak to it. But uh, if you start using up too much space in Ethereum, you have to, uh, you have to pay Ether to the, to the validators who are ultimately storing all that data. 
Uh, and so it's an incentive to keep Ethereum light and to keep laptops to be able to val- uh, validate the, the blockchain. Is that set in stone? Because I kind of saw, you know, Vlad talk about, about it a bit, but I thought it was just a idea that he propped up. Uh, I think it's something there. It's an idea that they are working on figuring out how to implement. Uh, and I think the really the it, it will get implemented if they can find a good way to implement it. I think that's the barrier. I have to chime in here that nothing in Ethereum is set in stone because <laughs> it can still be changed. But with that being said, I want to ask you, Julian, as someone who appreciates kind of both sides, what do you think are a common misconception, the the worst misconception Bitcoiners have towards Ethereum and then vice versa? So for Bitcoiners have against Ethereum, I think is that the, there is no possible use cases that can succeed on Ethereum or a smart contract platform. I think right now, like, you know, MakerDAO is really shining and DeFi or decentralized finance I, I am optimistic about that in 2019, but uh, to promote the uh, things that Ethereum people have misconceptions about, I really do believe it's about the Austrian economic portion of Bitcoin's uh, use case and its goals. I do really believe, even though you know su- he's a super Bitcoin dude, but I do believe people should read, even if you disagree with the idea and disagree with Austrian economics, the Bitcoin Standard by Amos, I can't pronounce his last name exactly, Safe right? Safadina Moose. Safadina Moose. But that should be something that you definitely read and understand because those arguments are really compelling. And I think at the very least, if you're just a pure Ethereum dude, you can read that and be a little more educated about what you think about monetary policy. At the very least, you'll have, an, uh, you have a more educated opinion. Well, I'll have to add that to my list then. It's on Audible, so you can listen to it, David. I do enjoy my Audible books. How about you, David? I feel like you also are kind of in the same position as as Julian of, you know, having kind of a deep appreciation for both. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions? Actually, what I would like to say is that Bitcoin and Ethereum tends to be a pretty interesting parallel between conservative and liberal uh, is an idea I've been tumbling around lately. So Bitcoin, Bitcoiners are like, really risk adverse and not really open to change and kind of like things the way they are and and don't want to see their the any threat to their assets and then big and then ethereum people are like these super super experimental let's try everything we're open to all communities like come onto our platform like even basic attention token will even let you in here even though you don't add anything to our community like stuff like that uh and so as far as as whatever the opposite of misconception is, I think that's pretty accurate. I would definitely say that I have also noticed the rift between more conservative people being on the Bitcoin side of things and more liberal-leaning people being on the Ethereum side of things. But with that being said, I don't think it's that clear of a cut. Um, And I definitely wouldn't agree that Bitcoin people are close to close to change like clearly they're trying to change the world like bitcoin is a pretty revolutionary thing but there are very strong held beliefs i think the biggest issue that bitcoin people have is they have this overwhelming belief in being righteous and saving people and saving people from scams and i think that's actually the biggest (laughs) flaw is because you don't need to save people like people can learn the hard way and yeah there's a lot of scams out there but you don't have to determine and even my comment about coinbase um adding you know golem which is clearly a bad investment you know that just kind of shows 
like even I embody a little bit of that misconception when really we should just let people be free and make choices and make mistakes on their own. On the flip side, really, I feel like there's a very, very strong misconception on the Ethereum community on how mining works, how the energy grid works, and why Bitcoin is in fact, um, you can safely know that it is finite. And what is the difference between Bitcoin decentralization versus Ethereum decentralization? Because I don't think it's the same. I would have to agree on on both of those points. Uh, the Bitcoin is going to destroy the world because of its electric electricity consumption just doesn't really sit with me. Uh, I think there's plenty of uh, counter arguments to that. And if Bitcoin does really start to consume just an incredible amount of power, but at the same time, it also creates like financial freedom and like it's a trade off. Like, and I think finance is a lot more important. What was the other thing you said? Why you can be confident that Bitcoin is going to have 21 million coins and why it's actually decentralized, like to an extreme degree. Yeah, I see Ethereum people like saying, like, do you actually think Bitcoin has a 21 million limit? Like, they're just going to start minting more once it approaches. And I think that's also, that's just a mistake. Uh, Bitcoin is either going to work with a 21 million limit or it's not. I do believe Bitcoin will always be Austrian economic focused, but I do have questions around like in the future, once the block reward just starts getting smaller and smaller and more of that is uh, incentivized by fees. I do think that is a little unclear on how that will turn out. And I wouldn't be, I don't know exactly what that will look like, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a small amount of inflation that's added onto Bitcoin in order to compensate for that. And again, I think that can be done without destroying the Austrian economic argument of Bitcoin. Totally disagree. I'm sorry. Yeah, it can't, uh, I mean, it can't be done. I, I think that that will actually be a, a thing that happens in the future, like the next big Bitcoin cash 2.0 is going to be a result of miners wanting to miners claiming that they need more block rewards in order to secure the network. And so that's going to cause a bunch of controversy. Um, I think uh, on a slightly related topic, the next big landmark for Bitcoin isn't um, the halvening, but I mean, that's always going to be related, but it's, it's going to be the day that uh, block rewards are more than 50% paid in fees than it is block rewards. Uh, so I, so we're going to need a few more hal halvenings to get there. Um, but that will be that's kind of the final point of success for Bitcoin is that when when block rewards are more than 50 percent generated by fees, uh, because that's when you know that there's a lot of proof that the fee market works. Yeah, absolutely. And I addressed this on older shows, but in my opinion, Bitcoin is a binary result. It either is a failure or a success. And if Bitcoin becomes a global clearinghouse of value, there's no way in hell that fee that there's not going to be a sufficient fee market. I just don't believe it. Even if fees are, from a Satoshi perspective, much lower than what we would expect now, from a buying power perspective, it, they will be astronomical compared to what we expect now or what we're used to. All right, let's keep going. Something that Julian like specifically wanted to talk about was sovereign identity, um, and I think this, you know, block blockchains and cryptocurrencies are really. Um, defensive technologies for individuals to take back power and be quote unquote sovereign individuals. And part of that is being able to kind of control your identity and have uh, mobility with it. So Julian, do you kind of want to talk about sovereign identity and you know what's being done in that field and what you're interested in? Yeah, because again, like earlier on, 
when I was uh, looking into Ethereum, one thing I just wanted to kind of better understand were these use cases, right? Because there was all sorts of very big, wild claims about what Ethereum can do. So I wanted to see, like, did it actually do anything? And I think uh, one good way to highlight uh, identity on the blockchain and what it can achieve, even though it was extremely unpopular and not well-received by any community, was um, Civic had these vending machines with beer in them where you can go up with the Civic app and um, check in with your Civic app and they wouldn't uh, and they would serve you beer. And the reason I thought that was really an awesome proof of concept is because and what people missed, the big picture that they missed with that is that individuals only had to show the only information they had to show was their birthday, like are you 21, yes or no, and they literally didn't have to reveal any other information about themselves in order to purchase beer from that vending machine. And uh, the way they do that is really interesting. And I guess first we can like think about like what makes our ID um, valuable and useful, right? It's because a DMV, a third party, attests, says like all this information on here is a fact, right? But what are the, the negatives to that? Or what at this point is, um, do we have to put up with? Like think about going to like a bar or a club. All they need to know is your age. They don't need to know where you live. They don't need to know your name and all that other information on there. But um, yeah, at this point they have to because it all comes in on that ID. But what you can do on the blockchain, you don't put your personal identifying information on the blockchain because that's very undesirable too, right? Anyone could look at all that information on there. What you can place is a hash of all your information on there and a digital signature from a third party like the DMV, hypothetically in the future. Let's put this hypothetically in the future. So let's say you had a signature from the DMV on the blockchain that says whatever this hash points to, all this information is correct and you have uh, that hash uh, of that data is represented on uh, actual data on your phone and that is stored as a merkle tree so like for instance your age would just be a little branch on that merkle tree uh, so you give that little Merk, uh, merkle branch when you check in somewhere they see that your age is validated and all of a sudden you've enabled something that was previously impossible you have verified that you're in fact 21 without with only by only showing your picture and uh your age i mean i think that this is actually one of the most exciting things obviously civic um no one knows if the civic token is actually something that's going to be valuable again something that coinbase recently added a little dubious but um the fact that an individual can you know potentially have mobility over you know let's say this individual goes and gets three or four different third parties to validate this information quote unquote um and then they have that information on their phone maybe they could you know travel the globe with um you know with this information that they can recover with their biometric information or you know with their with their fingerprint or their or their iris um and you know they can they can cross countries and be able to give them the information that they need and those countries can trust that it's true um, but on the flip side, they don't have to overexpose themselves. And if they lose something physical, they don't have to, you know, be susceptible to having no identity, which is something that lots of refugees are struggling with today is that they are traveling with no identity and no way to get a bank account and no way to, um, you know, get any sort of services because 
you know, one, they lost uh, physical identity, they have left their country, there's no one to protect them, no one to verify that they are real, even though clearly they're real human beings. Um, so this sort of identity solutions are going to be huge. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm Self-sovereign identity is a huge topic in cryptocurrency. Uh, so I think Civic has almost everything solved except for the single point of failure. Uh, so if Civic goes down, the identity solutions go down, I think. I'm actually not totally sure about this. Uh, Julian, do you know if that's true or not? I'm not too sure about that. There are many different implementations like other than Civic. There's also Uport, and I believe the ERC standard is 721. Um, I'm, I'm confident that the Uport one is very resistant to central points of failure. I don't think there's any in that one. But there is, from my understanding, I believe it's either ERC 721 or 725. I know one of them is NFTs. The 721 is a non-fungible token. So it must be 25. But there is one where I believe you put like personal identifying information on the blockchain. And I, I don't think that's the, the way to go about that one. But the Uport example, although it's not, it doesn't seem to be getting too much uh, adoption or attention, seemed interesting to me because like uh, they at the very least were really making an effort to put zero point of failure between uh, your identity and the blockchain itself. Yeah, I used Uport actually to uh, apply for the East Denver, um, East Denver event, uh, and I was really happy with it. It was really, really easy. And uh, I actually had to download it on my phone and then use that to apply. And then I got a new phone. And then when I, when I downloaded it on my new phone, uh, I didn't it had everything uh, remembered, it had like my account saved. And so I had to just like log in. Uh, with my password and, and fingerprint and then my my uh, application to ETH Denver was accessible uh, via that. Um, which kind of brings me into the topic I, I want to talk about, which is the integration of mobile devices and identity. Uh, and so um, I think this is a really important piece of infrastructure when it comes to proving your identity to the blockchain because because these phones almost basically represent the person now. And these phones also uh, like have biometric scanners, like your fingerprint, face ID, voice recognition. I think somebody's going to build a very strong bridge between blockchain-based identity and mobile devices that effectively represent the person. Uh, and so I'm hoping that like a, a private key can be ab abstracted to some combination of somebody's fingerprint, facial scan, and voice recognition because that is the most the highest level of security. Uh, because you know, you know, it's impossible to replicate your DNA. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't really see anyone yet building that, uh, but I'm excited that I think it's possible, and somebody could probably put those puzzle pieces together, and we could get something out of that. Something to kind of consider here is a lot of people in the Bitcoin community have actually been thinking about identity too, but rather than it being, you know, an identity play, rather it's kind of like a reputation play. And theoretically, what they're saying is that a lightning node can have a reputation. And based on that lightning node reputation, that could be your reputation on the internet that you carry with you. And as long as you want to reference that reputation, you utilize that node. Um, so while that is not, you know, this person was born on this date, this person is 21, it theoretically could be, um, you know, some sort of online reputation and source of trust um, that is completely sovereign and a kind of an example of how this something similar to this is already working today is when you look at totally anonymous Twitter accounts, uh, you know, a lot of people respect, 
and follow a ton of anonymous Twitter accounts where we have no idea anything about them, but we know that we trust and respect them based on their reputation over time. So uh, that's just kind of a simple example of, you know, how this kind of like reputation system can uh, work on the internet with being completely sovereign and actually having no uh, information about who you really are. Yeah, I'm actually really interested. And this is like very kind of pie in the sky, blockchain or crypto in like 10, 20 years. But I do think eventually like self-sovereign identity and self-sovereign reputation, although definitely there's a lot more to figure out. Maybe this is the, you know, Ethereum native in me. I do see that playing out in interesting ways in the future where it will enable, you know, commerce between different people across the world. If you can trust like, all right, if you can design, you know, set up some sort of bounty where, all right, design this for me. And, uh, you know, someone from across the globe with a good reputation, uh, you know, builds it for you or, or you build it for them. And there's trust in that payment process because of these like really uh, well built systems of digital identity and self-sovereign identity. Definitely agreed. Do we have any last topics, Christian? Are you guys, are you guys ready to wrap this up? No, I think it's time to wrap it up. We got, we got another homie here who's on the couch. He's just like, when are you guys going to be done? He's trying to eat. We've been we've we've been making them wait for the past like hour or so. So all right, Julian, this is a great episode. Really happy to to have you on here, and we're and we also really appreciate you uh, retweeting our episode releases, uh, which reminds me to remind you guys to please rate and review our episodes uh, as we uh, as we release them. Yeah, and and no problem. You know, uh, I really like what you guys are doing because me myself, I, I do see like in the crypto space where people are either like all ethereum or all bitcoin and there's really no communication in between what i think is really awesome and unique about your podcast is that you have one btc leaning dude another ethereum leaning dude and you have enough knowledge of uh the other platforms where you can have a very educated conversation and i think this is for me at least this is the only place on the internet that i can find that so it's a huge value add for me so thank you for that Julian is a POV crypto maximalist. <laughs> I'm POV, a POV crypto maximalist, baby. That that is definitely a fact. So Julian, again, you're putting out some good work yourself. Where can the people find you? Yeah, follow, uh, I, you can follow me on Twitter at jmartinez underscore forty three, and also on Medium, where I, you know, whenever I feel like I have something good to say, I publish something at Julian Martinez. You have seen me on the icon. I'm the dude with a bald head and a blue shirt. You heard it here, guys. Bald head, blue shirt, Julian Martinez. You can find me on Twitter, CK underscore snarks. You can find the show at POV CryptoPod. David, where can people find you, man? You can find me at Trustless State. In a few days, I'll have uh, more followers than Christian. David has been slowly creeping, but I'm just a troll. Medium and putting out good content really helps you gain the following. If you just troll, it's not going to happen. So <laughs> you choose your own path. I'm going to stay trolling. <laughs> All right, guys. That was a great episode. Thanks for listening.
It's up for you to decide.